What's up, good people? Michael here, host of the latest political podcast, Cuckoo for Politics, where I am cuckoo and passionate about politics, and I'm sure you are too. You wouldn't be listening. Hey, so with that in mind, grab your favorite libations, whether it be coffee, tea, water, juice, beer, wine, or spirit or two. We'll talk about the hot topics that matter to you. Let's get started. This podcast is a continuation conversation I had with my friend Sam G. For those who have been following this podcast series, my friend Sam Jean is a fellow alum from Eastern Nazarene College, graduated magnum cum laude with a degree in history. He also received his Juris Doctorate from Boston University, where he concentrated in the areas of intellectual property. Now, Sam practiced entertainment law as an associate and then a partner at Neil Schwartz Associates. He worked for several entertainment companies before establishing his own consulting company, where he advises clients in the areas of strategic communication, media relations, and crisis communications. Now, in an earlier podcast, we had talked about coming to America. That podcast focuses on the issue of immigration, and it was distributed on October 17th. In that podcast, he had discussed his conservative beliefs under the influence of the brand Ronald Reagan. Now, however, upon entering a Christian college, his political evolution changes. His eyes begin to widen and begin to see firsthand how hypocritical the conservative views he once held was. Well, I'll let you listen and you judge for yourself. Welcome back to another episode of Kuka for Politics. Now you're on a Christian campus. Now, we did say since the 1980s, religious conservatives have built a network of political, legal, and social activism within the Republican Party. They kind of infuse faith and politics. So that's what attracted a large audience or large American citizens to the Republican Party. Now let's transition. You're on the campus, you're developing ideas. Think about this. Did you find that the Republican Party that you knew of, were they the same when you got to campus? Well, I think that's an, that's an excellent question, Michael, and I think you know what my answer is going to be. Um, but the Republican Party that I thought I knew when I thought I was a Republican never existed. It was a fiction. <laughs> it never existed. I wanted it to be this thing that it wasn't. And when I got to campus, I realized, and even then, you know, this was the George Bush years, right? So we haven't Correct. even gotten into uh, the years subsequent to that, you know? George Bush Sr., to be clear. Yes, better. yeah, this is a George Bush Sr. Um, uh, so we haven't even gotten to where we, we've gotten, but let me, let me backtrack and say this. When the Republicans started using the family values moniker and all this stuff, um, they were appealing to a particular group of people, and in their mind, they thought they were, uh, it, in, in the mind of evangelicals, they thought that this was a good thing. 
in my mind, I started to see it as something racist. But I started to see it as a 15, 16-year-old. Why? There were a couple of things. But the one thing that started me moving further and further away was my mom uh, had my last sister, my youngest sister, and I are 15 years apart. Okay. Okay. So my mom had an unexpected child who wasn't expected to survive, you know, as, as an older mom, all right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Watching my mom going through the pregnancy and all this stuff, in my mind, it changed something, something that used to be an abstraction, right? Because I had never seen my mom pregnant with any of my siblings, <laughs> okay? So when she had my older brother, I wasn't born, and then I was born, and then she had my brother and sister while I was still in Haiti, and I hadn't come to America. Oh, so I had never okay. seen my mom pregnant in and I wouldn't have known. But as a teenager, right now, you're beginning to develop some personality and understand. I watched my mom have a very difficult pregnancy. And I started to question these ideas about life and when does life begin and what's this and what's that, right? But I didn't have the language. I didn't have the knowledge to really articulate it. But the family values people I felt were saying something about people who look like me and where we came from. Right. And mm-hmm. so when I fast forward and I got to college and I started hanging around people who spoke the language of republicanism, I was mortified because I was like, oh, these people don't know how black people in America live when it came to this issue of race. Right. They have no idea. And once, and they can't, remember I I said previously about my father in reason? And I was like, they can't even make a reasonable argument to me about what what this is. And so they don't have any idea about why they believe what they believe. They just know that they've been raised to believe these things. And so they believe them. So let's, I want want to draw on on something. You, You were talking about your sister, and your mom having a difficulty with pregnancy. And then you're seeing rhetoric posed by your Republican college mates. How did that tie in? What are they saying that made you say, how come they don't understand where black people uh, are going through difficulty? Yeah, no, no. So, So here's the thing. So I was in high school when my mom had my youngest sister. By the time I got to college... We would, we would have conversations about, obviously, these race conversations, right? The same conversations we've been having, it seems, forever, right? Okay. About what's going on. Why are there these things in the African-American community and this and that? And then you would hear the things, gotcha. that, the responses that people would make about why is there a high black unemployment rate, right? Mm-hmm. People then would talk about, and I, if you remember correctly, well, I was the year ahead of you. But that is the year that uh, George Bush's people, Lee Atwater, they ran that Willie Horton ad in Massachusetts. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. So, so that was oh yeah, that was the year they they ran it. They played Dukakis like Dukakis was right. 
week on crime uh, because I remember the Willie Horton. It was a revolving exactly. door with inmates yeah, going and, in and out, and, and they kept portraying and, and, Willie Horton, yeah. who was a black man. Yes, yeah. and, and, and and so I I saw this and I'm like, wait a second. And then by the time I got to Boston, you know, there was this case of of a woman um, uh, who had claimed a, a black guy had a. a a guy claimed a black guy had shot his wife uh, on a bridge um, and people's responses to that and how quick people were willing to believe it. And one of the things is I, I, if you're ignorant because you don't know, then you just don't know, but there comes a point where you can educate yourself, especially today. Right? So when I was in college, I decided, okay, these feelings that I have about what I truly believe, let me explore those feelings. And the more I explored them, the further they took me. But, and this is why um, I'm resisting being called a Democrat today, because then I was a Democrat. And then I became, okay. and then I was what you would call a moderate Democrat, right? Because they were telling me that the things that I really was interested in were not attainable. Like you have to go slow, right? You have to be a progressionist. You have to, it's incremental, time, time, time. Um, and so that's where I was. So if you if you remember, most of what I got trouble for writing in college politically are things that, you know, at the time people were still like, that's not moderate enough. I remember I wrote something against the Iraq war and I got um, I got a response from one of the soldiers over there. OK, the first. Yeah, really? the first Iraq war. I, I had published this thing in the paper and he wrote back. And, and and today, right, what I wrote about the first Iraq war, nobody would think that that was, everybody would think that that was like the moderate position, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But even then when, you know, people thought, oh, that, that's, that's too far left of a position. But I was the moderate Democrat. I was the person who were like, okay, you know what, you can work with this Republican, Right. Because who 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 did I see working together? Right. That Ronald Reagan, Tip O'Neill, even like like there was this idea that these guys were involved in this game. Right. And, and they could work things out. Right. I thought, OK, maybe you can have a conversation with them. I was a fool. for what? I was a fool for believing that. But at the time, it was like this is where moderation gets you. So when certain candidates came along. I felt myself being steered towards, okay, this is a moderate candidate. This is a moderate candidate. This is a moderate candidate. So uh, from college through law school, it was the moderate candidate. But what I also watched from college to law school is if you thought the rise of the moral majority in the 80s was, was wild, the rise of right-wing talk radio in the 90s is really what set the evangelicals on the course that they're going because you had people talking 24 hours a day, seven days a week about their grievances and their grievances were always about something conservative. Yes. And uh, it, which reminds me of the current president, and a speech that he, not a speech, but a, a quote that he's often said in front of evangelicals. He'd always used to scare them. 
He's the following radical left agenda, taking away guns, destroy your Second Amendment, no religion, no anything, and hurt the Bible and hurt God. He's against God. This is what Trump is saying about Biden, the current Democratic nominee, realizing that, as, as we know historically, Biden is a Catholic. He has spoken openly about his faith, and he even talked about how his faith had coped with his death of his family, um, particularly like his latest son, Beau. And he carries the rosary beads that belongs to his son. And so you're seeing how Trump is focusing on these little hot button issues, guns, faith. Um, I don't know where they get this notion from, but this is where their their allegiance is like they're hearing Trump is saying these key words. I mean, there's there's a couple of things that that's very odd to me in terms of the Republican psyche, uh, especially these people who talk about the Constitution and and originalism, textualism, right? They 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 want you to look at it originally, how it was written, and derive some meaning from that um, for today. But but part of the problem is they begin on this premise that we are a religious nation. Okay, that's the number one. They begin on this premise. We are not a religious nation. We are a secular nation that allows for religious liberty, but we are not a religious nation. So the fact that a person might be a Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Baha'i, Hindu, Muslim, whatever, it, it, it should be irrelevant to whether or not they run for president, those kinds of things. But we are so caught in the fiction of America being a Christian <laughs> religious nation that the, the man has inserted your religion as being part of the Constitution. That's one. But number two, it's amazing to me the kinds of issues that evangelicals cling to versus the kinds of issues that they don't. Right? So they will cling to an issue of abortion even though abortions are down, even though abortions are traditionally down under democratic administrations, even though every credible study says that if you want to keep abortions down, the way to do it is through education, contraception, that sort of thing, right? Because since we live in a secular country, abortion will never completely be outlawed. And, and there are very few countries in the world that completely out. Everybody has rules. Reasonable people understand uh, what that means, okay? But they're wedded to this principle. And they're so wedded to this principle that they forget other stuff. These people who will demand that someone have a child will also deny that child medical benefits. Okay? Yeah. And, and, and so they accuse you of murder, yet they, they will enact policies that doom this child to a life of poverty, misery, that sort of thing. Okay? And now, I don't know many people. And the other thing that goes, the other thing is Christians have a hard time when people tell them what to do how to practice their religion, their faith, right? That part of Protestantism, right, is protesting. Yes, <laughs> testing, yes. The Catholic Church yes. telling me this is, right? So 
Christians understand people not people came to this country, founded colonies in this country because they were escaping religious persecution. Why then would we use an issue here, an issue there to dismantle everything else, right? Because this notion that evangelicals have that they have to win now. And this goes against everything that I've ever understood about Christianity. Christianity isn't about winning. It isn't about punching down. Right? It's it's about sharing. It's about seeking the kingdom of God. It's about loving your neighbor. It's about taking care of people who can't take care of themselves. It's about those kinds of things. You're right. And I, I remember a, a, a Facebook thread where actually it was in your state. Some people that we are familiar with, um, I won't use any names, but people that we know from college who posted that we need to get rid of the governor, in your case, Newsom from California, because he is preventing religious services from taking place. Now, this is during the peak of the pandemic. And we all know why the reasons why they were doing restrictions on crowds, because they knew the spread was happening and they had to make some type of control. That's why bars and restaurants, clubs are limited or don't or, or closed because they're afraid of the spread of the, the virus. I say this to you because the reason why this, these individuals are against the governor is because they feel like he's infringing on their um, freedom to worship. And that is not the case. Yes, but they'll, they'll, they'll say that. And what I will say to them is, okay, well, you have a right to have it heard in court, right? You have the right to have it heard in court. Someone else will say, well, um, I think that I should decide what I should be able to do with my body. <laughs> and, mm. and they'll say, well, yeah. well, no. The church thing is, is particularly funny as an aside, because these are people who come from the tradition where they say if three or more are gathered in my name, Right. Like, we remember this verse. Yes. So yes. this notion, and we he didn't even touch the churches because you could go to church online. But, but this is what I mean. Evangelicals have become hyper-political. And so now something that is all reasonable people could understand. Of course, you don't want to have church services. Of course, you, you don't want to have church in, in church services, indoors, with people talking, singing, praising. You know, and depending on, on, on what your Christian tradition is or Christian affiliation, you might have people catching the Holy Ghost, right? Like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And yes. I'm not trying to be funny, but like, why? It's not a safe environment to do that. And I think that it's not unreasonable for the government to be able to do that. Now, here's the thing these same people who say that understand that every Freedom, every religious freedom has some restrictions. Every right has some restrictions. And I think this is the thing evangelicals don't understand. They want restrictions for the things that, that they want, but they don't want restrictions for other stuff, right? You have the freedom to practice your religion, but if your religion involves the drinking of the blood 
of goats in yes. public squares, <laughs> they're not going to let you practice it there, man. They're just not going to do it. it they're it's, not going to do it. It, it. it makes sense. It just and, it's clear. And, and, and I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm not trying to be funny, Michael, but it's it's one of those things that every right has some restriction associated with it. And so, yes, you have the right to vote, but you can't show up on a day where voting isn't happening and demand to vote, right? That's, that's, that's a restriction. You have the right of free speech, but you can't slander someone, right? That, that's a restriction. You have a right to bear arms, but if you try to buy a Stinger missile, you might get a visit, right, from the feds. Right. That's a reasonable restriction. And but evangelicals want unreasonable restrictions. If you look at the abortion laws in this country, they're pretty restrictive. But that's not good enough. And then this this fascination about people who are supposed to be men and women of the almighty heavenly army arming themselves to the teeth and thinking that that's somehow a manifestation of what God wants, that I don't understand. My dad had crackheads in front of the church. He had drug dealers, and he never carried a weapon. He's had guns pulled out on him and stuff like that. Never carried a weapon. I'm not saying my dad was a pacifist. He knew how to handle himself, but he never needed a weapon, okay? I am not, most of the time, I believe that if people stayed away from violence, they could resolve their problems, okay? All wars have demonstrated to us is most of the time, violence is not the answer, right? The, the result that you got at the end, maybe if people went a different way, you wouldn't have all these people dead before the war, right? From, from the war. But... I'm not a complete pacifist. I understand there are times where you have to do that. I understand a person needing a weapon and saying, hey, I want this for protection. I, I understand all that. What I don't understand is why people think that a reasonable restriction means the government is coming to knock on your door, Mr. Christian, Mrs. Christian, and take all your guns. And if you're Mr. or Mrs. Christian, how many guns you need? How many guns you got? I, I mean, there are yep. gun collectors. Don't get me wrong. I have a, I have a former client who's a gun collector. She, she has a vast array of weapons, and I get that. Okay? But mm-hmm. there are people like who, who have 50 guns and are upset that the government might tell them you can't get 50 more. Reasonable restriction. And that's actually a separate podcast that I'm going to dwell into, which is all about the Second Amendment. Because I, um, because one thing I, I just don't get it, there is a, I mean, pre-pandemic, there was gun, gun violence mm-hmm. as far as school shootings and clubs and you, you name it, every public place. But I find it interesting how, if you think about it, this listening to Trump, how he's framing the conversation why evangelicals should be still loyal to him. Because like I said earlier, he's posing, he's framing the conversation that Biden poses a threat to religious freedom. 
But he keeps saying that with me, you're going to get not only justices that support pro-life, but I am the one that is going to support the state of Israel. Yeah, it's, heard that it's, too. it's, Michael, and, it's, uh, I'm sorry I didn't answer it at the first pass, but it's, number one, it's pandering, right? It's pandering. But the, the fact that the pandering works demonstrates to you the pit that the right-wing evangelical community has fallen into, right? You have this man who says one thing, and he behaves in a completely, in a completely different manner. So if you're just concerned about abortion, and that means that you will accept this man's racism, you'll accept his sexism, you'll accept his homophobia, you'll accept his, his adultery. adultery. And he can be forgiven for that. You'll accept his criminality. If, yes. you're, if abortion is what's going to make you accept all these other things, then there's nothing that I can say to you. You've already sold your soul, pardon the pain, right? Because what can I say to you? Because for one candidate to sit there and to talk about the spiritual faith of another candidate to a group of people where I've said this to you before, Michael, he doesn't even respect the evangelicals. He doesn't respect what they believe. He doesn't respect how they worship. He makes fun of them behind their back. Yet he knows that it doesn't matter what he says or what he does. As long as he promises to give them what they want, they're perfectly fine with it because evangelicals have become drunk for power. And they have it. And the truth is, they've had it for a while. Yes. And, and which brings up a quote that you just mentioned. Because in 1950, the NAE president, Stephen Payne, said this about evangelicals. He warned, he says, they risk the place which the Lord should be and officials telling them what they want to hear while failing to provide real answers. He's basically saying, we have to limit our engagement with government. I, I'm a big separation of church and state person. If these evangelicals want to behave in this way, then I have no problems with my friends who are atheists. They're like, hey, we have to tax them, right? Because, because if you're engaged in political <laughs> activity, then, then this not-for-profit status that you share, because we treat uh, churches and religious institutions differently, maybe you don't need that special, maybe you don't need that special treatment. But yeah, exactly. uh, and, and, and so to your point, the things that would have made someone a moderate a few years ago, even on the Republican end, right? Someone like Colin Powell, okay? In today's Republican Party, he's not even considered a moderate. Evangelicals can't stand him <laughs> now, right? Because because of because he said the right things about Trump. And finally, this notion about Israel, 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 it's it's tied into this what I consider bad end times theology. Okay. And and all politicians have been told that evangelicals love Israel and all you have to say is that you love Israel and evangelicals will be behind you. Not everything, and, 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 to make this, and to make this clear, you are entitled to support whatever country you're entitled to support. 
but a person saying they support one country just so that they can get your vote and you think that that's what God wants them to do, you've lost it. There's, there's no, it doesn't work. Strike that. It may work that way for you. Um, it doesn't work that way for me. And I can tell you that my father, the person that I talked about, I told you that if you brought something to him that was reasonable, he could accept it. But my dad would never allow someone like Donald Trump to tell him that Joe Biden is going to kill God. You know, like like hates God. Yeah. God won't be around. Because my dad, while he liked Ronald Reagan, he liked Jimmy Carter. He liked Walter Mondale. Right? He liked Michael Dukakis. Like he didn't have this. He's like, I'm just simply not going to vote for this guy. I'm going to vote for this for this other person, but I don't have to attack their religion because when they're doing that, that means they don't have anything. That's all they have. That's correct. That is absolutely correct. You you know what? Um, I'm going to pivot to another segment that I want to circle to and talk to you about the party of family values to QAnon. Let's close out this episode with final thoughts. And it will pick it up on the next episode for Kuka for Politics. Always an enlightening conversation that I have with my friend Sam Jean. That's why he's always a recurring guest. And it's interesting because in this episode where we talked about his evolution of his political leanings, it makes me think the current trend of white evangelicals have what he has termed, they have become drunk for power as they infuse themselves within the Republican Party and pushing their agenda above all others. Now, do not get offended if I said white evangelicals. What are black church leaders saying the same thing? I don't know, but I know in my church, they, the only discussion of elections or politics is the emphasis in getting to know your local leaders, hold them accountable, and vote. But they don't infuse religion into the politics. So that's why I have to emphasize white evangelicals. Now, keep in mind, all interest groups, for the most part, always would like to have a say or an influence on any given piece of legislation that may or may not affect their constituent. But what makes the evangelical brand of politics is that they seem not to want restrictions when it comes to their agenda, but restrictions on others. Now, some would argue, if the evangelical group continues to infuse themselves in pushing their agenda and mixing their values with legislators, particularly Republican legislators, then should they continue to have their special tax-exempt status? Now, it seems white evangelicals need to heed the warning that was said by the National Association of Evangelicals, whereby the church members should not allow themselves to become so entangled with political influences and parties of Washington. Moreover, their blinded faith in a political figure, notably 
the current president of the United States, is that it's risking the state filling the place where the Lord should be. Now, as we talked earlier, the advent of conservative talk radio in the 90s and the right-wing news media outlets and the explosion of social media have paved a way for conspiracy theories to run rampant among some members of the American electorate. Now, in my next episode, we're going to talk about the transition of how did the party become of family values-oriented to embracing QAnon conspiracy theories. Join me on the next episode of Cuckoo for Politics. This is Michael. Stay safe. Don't forget to vote and be well.